Hi folks, this is Mary Claire Erdenast. Welcome to Play for Keeps podcast. We are recording new plays as podcasts in Ashland, Oregon, as a part of the Ashland New Plays Festival. Welcome back to part two of The Harder Courage by Leslie Slape. If you haven't yet heard part one, check out last week's episode. The Harder Courage by Leslie Slape is one of the premium plays recorded at playforkeeps.org. For the full collection of premium plays, please subscribe now at playforkeeps.org. Please enjoy part two of The Heart of Courage by Leslie Slape, featuring Michael Gabriel Goodfriend, you Jonathan Topo, Eric Popek, and stage directions read by Nancy Rodriguez. Scene 12. Setting. Later that evening, Robert's jail cell. It contains a bunk with a blanket. His supper tray is nearby. It contains a plate of food, a cup, and cutlery, including a table knife. At rise, Robert is huddled on his bunk, holding the knife. He has not touched his food. He sings a gallows ballad. They've taken me to the gallows, mother. They're going to hang me high. The people will gather round me there. Robert examines the knife. It is very dull. Watch me till I die. He begins to sharpen the knife against the iron bars, in rhythm with the song. The crazy mob will shout and groan. The priest will read a prayer. The trap will fall beneath my feet and leave me in the air. Tests knife. Resumes sharpening in rhythm. It is a bright and a beautiful day. The sun is shining high. It is a bright and a beautiful day, the sun is shining high. It is a wonderful day to live and a gloomy one to die. Ain't gonna die on the gallows, I'm a good man, they can't take my life from me, no sir. Ain't gonna hang. Robert places the blanket over his lap. Liars. All them witnesses, damn liars. Robert adjusts the blanket over his left lower arm. Damn the witness, damn the judge, damn the lawyers, damn the whole rest of the world. Can't take my life from me. Not if I take it myself. He checks to make sure he's alone. Goodbye, wife. Goodbye, children. I'll look for you in heaven. He picks up the knife again and bites on a corner of the blanket. Never flinch. Never back. Under the blanket, Robert plunges the knife into his lower left arm and laboriously begins cutting through the arm. Despite the knife's dullness, he is able, through sheer willpower, to cut into the arm. But he has somehow missed cutting the vital artery. He hears someone coming and lies down on the bunk, pulling the blanket over him and hiding his wounded arm beneath his body. Ben enters. Day, you finished with your supper? I see you haven't eaten. Are you feeling well? No, wait. I'm sick. Ben unlocks the cell. Did you say you're sick? Call it. Oh, uh, no. I'll get a doctor. One's in the courtroom. No, go away. Your wife's still here. She, she'd like to visit you. No, she can't see me like this. Ben pulls away the blanket and sees the arm. He snatches the knife, hurls it away. You fool! Doctor! Doctor! Using the blanket, he stanches the blood. Weak as a kid. Why do this? Afraid. You're afraid of death? No. Shame. Afraid of shame? Spare my family. 
You call this sparing your family bleeding to death in a jail cell? My choice. My control. I choose when and where to die. Robert struggles. He has trouble breathing. Stay with me, Day. Stay with me. They all hate me. Think I'm a killer. Breathe. Breathe. A snake. Breathe. Last. All last. Stay calm. Breathe. Go away. Let me die. Doc's on his way. No hope. Yes, there's hope. Fight it. Why are you... File an appeal right to the governor. Fight it. You think I'm guilty. Why are you helping? Because I've got a family, too. Your family deserves better than for you to die like a dog in the corner. Stand up like a man, Day. Don't die on me now. Sounds of running footsteps. End of scene. Scene 13. Setting, June 2nd, 1892. Ben's thoughts. We were fortunate. The knife had somehow missed the vital artery. Doc Stevens was still upstairs in the courtroom. He grabbed his medical bag, and we held Day down until the chloroform took effect. Doc stopped the bleeding and whipped ten stitches through his left arm. Elizabeth Day was there holding her husband's hand. Later in my office, she asked me what would happen next. I said that depends on whether the Supreme Court grants a hearing on the appeal. If he doesn't appeal, the hanging will be sometime before the middle of March. She sat quietly, twisting her handkerchief. Then she asked me why he tried to kill himself. I told her what he'd said, that he wanted to spare his family the shame of him dying on the gallows. This way, death was on his own terms, not the state's, I said. Mrs. Day sat silently a while. She rose to go, then turned back, and she said she wouldn't be able to afford to come into town as often as she had been. My husband has nightmares, she said. Sometimes there's gunfire only he can hear. The only thing that helps him is telling stories. It's his medicine. Twisting her handkerchief some more, she said, He needs me, but I I can't be here to listen. You're a good listener. Would you do that for him, please? And I thought about Susan and all her stories and how she calls me her still waters. And I thought of the stories I won't tell, can't tell. And I said, yes, of course I would. End of Act One. Act Two, Scene One. Setting, February 6th, 1892. Robert's new jail cell, a cold, soulless steel box with only a food slot to let the light in. The stage is dark. At rise, Robert is in his cell. Sheriff? Sheriff? Pounds on the cell. Sheriff! Lights up, Ben enters with keys, unlocks the cell. What's the matter? I can't sleep in here. No room. It's eight by five. Your bed fits. What time is it? Just before ten o'clock in the morning. It's always dark. Might as well be night. No windows. Cold iron, not warm wood. I'll bring another blanket. Might as well have dug a hole down the cellar thrown me in. This will keep out the lynch mob. Shove them in here and let me be on the outside. Is it really that dark? Kind of bought a coal mine by mistake. Does any light come in through the mesh on the ceiling? Has to be light above for it to come down in, Sheriff. Let's see what I can do. Take comfort that you're out of the rain. It's pouring. Oh, rain. Never thought I'd miss rain. I ain't touched outdoors in... What day is it? February 6th. 6th of February already? Don't seem real. I'm going to die in 20 days. Would you like me to sit with you a while? That would be a kindness. Show me that arm. Robert holds out his left arm. It's bandaged. Ben looks under the bandage. Still hurts like blazes. Looks like it's still healing. It's been nearly two months. What did Dr. Stevens say? He said give it another month. 
Of course, I'll be hung in three weeks. Why hasn't Billings filed your appeal? I can't pay. File as an indigent. And let everybody know I can't take care of my family. It might be best to swallow your pride. Would you like to talk about something else? Tell me what's going on out there in the world. I read that they've opened an island in New York City to handle immigrants from Europe. Send them back. America ain't got room for more people. My wife came from Ireland when she was only four. Oh, all right. Well, let her stay. She makes good biscuits. <laughs> yes, she does. So, when did your family come to America? Way back. Some came before the revolution, some later. A lot of the days settled in Burke's Garden, most beautiful spot in Virginia, maybe the world. Lordy, I loved Virginia. I'd watch Pap and the other Taswell men drill in cavalry before the war. That was a sight of rare beauty. Then Fort Sumter, I was 13, too young to sign up. By the time I was 15, the Confederacy had run out of men and called for boys. Pap was the third lieutenant helped me sign up. But when I turned 16, a few months later, he resigned his commission. He'd done his bid, and Mama told him to come home. You don't say no to Mama. I'll never forget when he left. He said, Son, you're still a boy in your Mama's eyes, but out here you're a man. Stand by your post like a man. Never turn your back on the enemy. Never flinch. Never be afraid to do your duty. Be the brave man I know you are and come home to us. I took those words into my heart. No man ever stood up like I did. His words kept me alive through homesickness, hunger, and fear. Some of the other boys was afraid they'd go to hell because thou shalt not kill. They died when the Federals came because they were afraid to fire a shot. Pap told me the good book really meant thou shalt not murder. He said, don't kill with murder in your heart. So whenever I fired my gun in battle, I kept murder out of my heart. I stayed alive, and I came home. That's a fine story. Your turn. No. Come on. I tell one, you tell one. You're the teller. I'm a very talented listener. Then I'll tell you a story about you. Now wait. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You said you're the listener. So listen. First, you ain't from around these parts. That's obvious. Nobody is. This is the legend of Ben Holmes. Silent and cool as a stone, deep as a well. Nobody knew where he was from, but it said he was born where the north wind blows. Ben acknowledges silently that Robert is close to the truth. Young Ben wasn't the eldest son in the family. He was... He was somewhere in the middle. A younger son had to seek his own fortune. Nothing to the fool about him, but he never got much chance to talk. Good guess. Fourth of eight. I'm second of eight. First boy. Ben read a lot of books. Loved horses and being out in the woods. He was raised by kind folks and became the kindest man in the world. One day he said, Mama, it's time for me to go out in the world and seek my fortunes. So off he went to be a soldier. Ben, who has been listening with fascination, abruptly rises. Hey, did I say something wrong? I'm sorry. Ten o'clock, commissioner's meeting. I'll come sit with you again whenever I have time. Lock cell door. Lights fade. Beat. In the darkness, Robert shouts. Sheriff! Come back here, Sheriff! Come back! It's dark in here! It's dark as a coffin. 
I swear I'll never die on the gallows. End of scene. Scene two. Setting. June 2nd, 1892. Ben's thoughts. February 1892. Robert's jail cell. At rise, Ben is alone. I never talk about the war. I lock those memories inside the steel box that is my mind. But Day seemed to want his to pour out. I could see that giving Day an opportunity to talk eased his melancholia somewhat. So I visited him as much as I could. And I allowed him to have all the visitors he wanted and write all the letters he wanted. He wrote them by the hundreds. February 1892, Robert is in his jail cell writing letters. Dear Editor, Capital punishment is a barbaric custom that should be outlawed. Dear Editor, it is a terrible sin to take a father away from his children. Dear Editor, a life that's taken cannot be returned. Dear Editor, public hanging is a disgrace to the state. Dear Editor, solitary confinement is a form of torture and must be outlawed. Until it arrived, I had not considered how horrible a small, dark cell could be for a man's sanity. I decided to keep the door open most of the time, with me or a deputy on guard. I let Day stack wood and do other work. Sometimes we play a game of checkers. End of scene. Scene 3, setting February 10th, 1892, outside of Robert's jail cell. At rise, Ben and Robert are sitting outside the open cell door playing checkers. What's today? The 10th. Sixteen more days till I hang. Put it out of your mind. Easy for you to say. <laughs> I saw a man hanged in Clark County. Edward Gallagher. Two years ago. That's right. We'd been up on the North Fork about a year then. I wish I'd stayed home that day. Why'd you go? Friend persuaded me. Once I saw the gallows, I wanted to leave, but there was too many people in the way. I heard it was horrifying. Sheriff Fleming still hasn't recovered. Gallagher fought like a demon. I'll never forget him screaming, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not sorry. I'll never be hanged. Took six men to handcuff him, throw him down, strap his legs, and all the while he's flashing wild eyes at us. They almost knocked a couple of reporters off the platform. When he was cuffed, he says, You got away with me, boys. But it took every one of you to do it. The crowd loved it, clapping like they were actors in a play. The sheriff said, now act like a man. Put the black cap on Gallagher's head, tightened the rope and hollered, did you kill that man or did you not now answer? Gallagher said, none of your damn business. The sheriff got so riled, he sprung the trap and choked him off in the middle of his last word. He was kicking and flopping like a trout at the end of the line and the crowd cheered with the coldest of blood. Then they cut the rope and his body fell like a chunk of beef. It won't be like that for you. I'm terrible worried. Don't worry. If all goes as I've planned, you'll feel no pain. That eases my mind some. And I'm not Sheriff Gallagher. Can you keep people away? Send a request to Judge Bloomfield asking to hold a private execution. I hope he does. You know Father Kearns has offered to pray with you. Many times, but I ain't interested. Lord of mercy, I miss Lizzie. It's been too long since I've seen her. Then you'll be glad to hear I've managed to arrange a visit. Lizzie's coming? When? Valentine's Day. In four days. The commissioners agreed to pay room and board for her to stay overnight. Woohoo! End of scene. Scene four. 
setting June 2, 1892, Ben's thoughts, and March 26, 1892, outside Robert's cell with the door open. His wife's visit cheered Day considerably, and a few days later he was ecstatic to hear the execution was off. The Supreme Court had declared him indigent, and Billings filed an appeal. But I kept up my visits with Day, which were becoming quite enjoyable. March 26, 1892, outside Robert's cell. The door is open. Ham. Cut from razorback hogs, fed on peanuts and peaches, smoked over apple and hickory wood, baked with brown sugar and cloves. Lobster, fresh out of the Atlantic Ocean, boiled in a big kettle, eaten, dipped in melted butter. Applesauce cake with black, wild walnuts. Oyster stew, sprinkled with dulce. Pecan pie with bourbon whipped cream. Atlantic salmon. Atlantic salmon served with new potatoes and fiddleheads. I done moved on to desserts, and you're still talking about fish. The game is foods we miss from back home. Lordy, lordy, I'm getting hungry. Who's cooking today? Pony Bush's wife. I hope they ain't fighting again because her food does not taste good when she's mad. Are they having troubles? I didn't know. You didn't ask, but I talked to everybody. I know all about Andy's rheumatism, Colonel Billings' new dining room table, seats 18, Pony's boat, and that fish somebody left in old man Imus's desk drawer. <laughs> they had to tear up the whole office looking for the smell. How did you know about that? <laughs> it might have been my idea. I might have suggested it to that reporter from the Courier. She didn't like the nasty things he wrote about her paper. You rascal. Hush now. Don't tell anybody or I'll hide a fish somewhere in the jail and you won't find it till weeks after I've gone home. It's on record. You threatened me. <laughs> Say, where did you come from where you ate all that fish? Uh, somewhere probably you never heard of. Doketown, New Brunswick. New Brunswick? Where might that be? Canada. Canada? You ain't American? I am now. How could you join the Union Army if you weren't American? Lots of foreign nationals served in the war. Both sides. Didn't you know that? I did not. My father came from Massachusetts. A lot of Holmes still live there. Do tell. Why did he go to Canada? In Doketown, there are trees as far as the eyes could see. To a logger, that's the same as streets paved with gold. Like it is here. Much the same. Trees and hills remind me of home, too. Your father's still with us? He's been gone 14 years. Even though he was stiff with age, he rose at his regular time every day and went about the place. On his last day, he rose, dressed himself, sat down on the sofa, quietly passed on. Quiet and peaceful. Was he a good man, like you? The best. He went back to Massachusetts to persuade the rest of the Holmeses to move to Doketown. They said, nope, Massachusetts is good enough for them. So father bought grandfather's farm and let him live there debt-free for the rest of his life. That's the kind of man father was. Was he a sheriff, too? No. He owned a lumber mill, but he was also a deacon in the Presbyterian Church. Holmes tend to believe in service. When the Democrats asked me to run for sheriff in 84, I thought this would be a good way to serve. I can't imagine you on the stump. <laughs> I didn't stand on a single one. I barely defeated my opponent. But once I pinned on that star, I, I knew this job was meant for me. And I thank the good Lord every day I haven't had to fire my gun at a man since the war. You must have come close sometimes. Oh, yes. Dangerous part of the job. 
On the other hand, there's paperwork and meetings. <laughs> but helping people is what I like best. Sheriff can help in big ways and in small, quiet ways. And I'm grateful for it. End of scene. Scene 5, June 2nd, 1892. Ben's thoughts. That was the first time I talked to anyone but Susan about father. When I went home that night, Susan could tell I was a little unsettled, and she drew it out of me. She told me, it's good for you to talk about your father, Ben. You shouldn't be upset. I said, but if days of Peel fails, I'll have to execute him. I can't allow myself to like him too much. She said, some friendships are long, some are short. They're all golden. Whatever will be is meant to be. Then she told me a story about two soldiers long, long ago in Ireland. They were in a war, fighting each other, sun up to sun down, until the rains came and poured down so hard they couldn't see. They went to a cave to wait out the storm. One had flint. He made the fire. The other had food, and he cooked it. They shared the food. They shared the fire. Then they shared their stories. They each learned who the other man really was. In the morning, they put their armor back on and went home. They weren't enemies anymore. She said, you can't hate someone once you know their story. A few days later, the Supreme Court set the date of Day's appellate hearing for April 6th. End of scene. Scene 6. April 5th, 1892. Ben's office. At Rise, Ben and Robert are playing checkers. Ben hops over several pieces. I win. I must be slipping. I didn't even see that. Want to play again? Day? Another game? Might as well. They set up the board. How soon till it's time to go? Checks his watch. Two hours. It feels like two years. You realize that if Billings' idea works, you'll go through another trial. I want another one. All I need is a second chance. He says he'll tell them judges that there's a few words missing in the charges, and they'll say, well, I'll be. How could we have missed that? Hmm. You think it won't work? I never try to predict what the court will rule. Your move. Robert makes a move. They play in silence a while. Of course, he tried that trick on Bloomfield. I remember. A human being. And Bloomfield turned it down. You think that's what'll happen tomorrow? I'm certain that Billings will argue with his usual eloquence. All I need him to do is use that silver tongue to make them give me a second trial. It has to work. I swear by all that's holy, I will never die on the gallows. If you're acquitted at retrial, will you move away? What do you think? Where would you go? As far away as we can. Lizzie will pick. I ain't in the mood for checkers no more. Would you like to read the papers? Write a letter. I want to go outside, chop down trees, feed cattle, curry horses, do an honest man's work. I should have planned it already. Too late for seed potatoes. I feel so damned useless. Here, sweep. Hands him a broom. He sweeps. I never realized how important little things are. I miss the way Lizzie can always find that itch twixt my shoulder blades. Or how she sews on buttons, how she fills the coal oil lamps without losing a drop, how she gets every bit of dust off the floor. Mostly I miss swapping yarns with her and the children. You're a good storyteller. You could spin a yarn if you put your mind to it. I've told you, not likely. Well, you fish, don't you? Around here, everybody fishes. But tell me a fish story. A fish story? A good long one. 
I built our house along the Kalama River, about three miles up from where it meets the Columbia. We have some really deep pools there. I love sitting by the river when the salmon are running upstream to spawn. It's astonishing how thick the fish are. It seems almost as if I could walk across the river on their backs. They've already had a long journey up the Columbia, but when they reach our pools, they sink to the bottom and rest, as if they're my guests for a short while. Then each one of them finds the strength to rise up out of the pools and finish the journey to climb the waterfalls, spawn, and die. I never fail to be inspired. How's that? That ain't what I meant by a fish story. That's all you get. I'm a contemplative man. You're a thinker. I'm a talker. That's us. It's time I take you to the depot. End of scene. Scene 7. Setting. June 2nd, 1892. Ben's bedroom. May 21st and June 2nd, 1892. Robert's cell. At rise, Ben is alone. He clearly hasn't been sleeping well. He's preparing to go to work to take his shift on Robert Day's death watch. Ben pours himself a cup of coffee and drinks without enjoyment. He lost the appeal. After that, he couldn't sleep at night. He wrote even more letters, put all his hopes on swaying the governor. May 21st, 1892. Dear Governor Ferry, I beg you to have mercy on my family and spare my life. My wife and five children have lost everything. I ask that you not put them through further shame by sending me to the gallows. I hope you can see your way to commute my sentence to life in prison. Please, my family needs me. I could work in prison and send money home. Awaiting your reply, Robert Day. On May 27th, the governor wrote back, No. Today, Robert asked for a priest. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Tomorrow's the hanging, June 3rd, 11 o'clock in the morning. In Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Deputy Close and I have been taking turns on death watch all week. Who is conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. Day isn't the only one who can't sleep. I need rest, but every time I close my eyes, I calculate and recalculate the hanging. Ben lies down and tries to sleep. His mind won't stop calculating. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Height, 5 foot 10 inches. Weight, 145 pounds. Was crucified, died, and was buried. Length of drop, 6 feet 3 and 1 half inches. Neck is snapped. Death is painless. He descended into hell. Third day he rose again from the dead. Weigh prisoner after breakfast. Test gallows with sandbags of same weight. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father Almighty. If the rope's too short, he'll slowly strangle. From thence, he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Too long, he'll be decapitated. I believe in the Holy Ghost. Can't make a mistake. The Holy Catholic Church. Dear God, I don't want to do this. The communion of saints. But I'm the sheriff. The forgiveness of sins. No one can take this cup from me. The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Please, God, don't let me make a mistake. Amen. Ben rises, takes a sip of coffee. It's cold. <sighs> Nothing will go wrong tomorrow. Nothing will go wrong. Then I can return to normal life. <laughs> normal. I can't take a man's life and then go home and be normal. All I can do is perform my duty and ensure that day dies with dignity. A clock chimes the hour. Ben rises, pins on his star, puts on his cowboy hat, and exits. 
End of scene. Scene 8. Setting. Ben's office later that evening. At rise, Ben and Robert are drinking coffee as Ben tells a story. Ben has his demons from his previous scene locked away. Robert is thin, gaunt, and weakened from his long confinement, but seems resigned to his fate, as he has acquired an inner peace and even joy in the life he has left. <laughs> in his hat. In his hat. After that, Doc stopped by our window every day and said, Muck-a-muck. And Susan would fill his hat to the brim with beans and biscuits. Muck-a-muck. <laughs> it should up for food. Lots of food. Now, Frank and Johnny were just four and three years old at the time, always getting into mischief. One day, Doc came by, but this time he wasn't there for beans. He was looking for his axe, which was indispensable to him. Susan lined up the boys, Charlie, who was seven, Frank and Johnny, and asked, Do you know where Doc's axe is? Looking as innocent as angels, Frankie and Johnny said, No, we don't know about any acts. But Charlie took old Doc's hand, led him right to the place where those thieving rascals hid it. His front teeth were missing, but he lisped, Truth, truth, loud and clear. Susie made quite a fuss over Charlie for his honesty. <laughs> now, hold on there. What? You said you didn't know how to tell a story. It's your fault. You made me forget I couldn't tell one. <laughs> you know... Oh, the last eight months, I've seen you sad, frightened, angry, desperate, frustrated, hopeful, depressed. But until today, I never saw you enjoying yourself. I decided why should I waste the last day of my life being downhearted. I'll treasure every last moment, every conversation, every breath of air. I heard you were baptized today. Seem prudent? Can't change my fate on earth, but I can save a spot for Lizzie and the children in heaven. Do you feel any different? Better than I expected. My soul's as slick as a bar of soap. I forgive everybody. I'm glad. What else have you done today? I wrote three letters I'd like you to give to Lizzie. Hands Ben sealed envelopes. Two for her, one for Dexter. Tell her she don't have to tell none of them nosy newspaper reporters what I wrote unless she wants to. I'll tell her. Robert hands Ben several pages. You know what this is? No idea. My autobiography. You're joking. Nope. For the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. When the reporter was here yesterday, he asked me for one. Will they publish it? Reckon so. Maybe you should write one. Oh, no, they'd be bored. Don't be so sure. Robert walks over to a window. Nice warm evening. How about letting me take a stroll? How about I open the window instead? <sighs> Did you know every month has its own aroma? When I came here, it was during the October smell. Crunchy leaves, apples, fir cones, wood smoke, nip frost. Eight months ago. Longest eight months of my life. I had to conjure every smell of winter and spring from memory. If I closed my eyes and breathed slow, I can smell a Thanksgiving dinner so good my mouth waters. Mmm. Roast venison, sweet potato pie, light bread and butter. Mmm, Christmas. Whole house smells like dug fur and sugar cookies. Outside I smell snow, the barn, new milk, the scent of my cattle munching on hay. Spring, black dirt, rich and full of promise. Time to plant the garden.
Come over here, Ben. Tell me what's in the air. Strawberries? Ripe, juicy strawberries. Warm and sweet. The smell of June. Carried on a breeze all the way from the woodland bottoms. But the sweetest smell of all would be freedom. If I could walk free right now, I wouldn't even mind if it were raining. I'd turn my face up to the rain, open my mouth, and drink in the pure, delicious taste of being free. A man cannot appreciate freedom till he can't walk outside when he wants to. Twilight. Steamboats on the Columbia, trains on the track, smoke in the chimneys. Life goes on. They don't know how lucky they are. We never appreciate the blessings of an ordinary day. Mind if I read the papers? Be my guest. Friday to be a gala day on the Columbia. Oh, oh Lordy, they made a pun of my name. A gala day. Throws paper down, picks up another newspaper. You are cordially invited to the cowlets hanging. Well, I'll be dad blamed. I did not realize we was sending invitations. I'll have to dress up. <laughs> what happened to keeping folks away? I tried. Bloomfield said the law makes no provision for privacy. Well, it don't have to be the social event of the season. I suppose the beebs are coming and all the loggers. The railroads and ferries are booked up. People are coming from Portland, Olympia, Tacoma, Vancouver, Seattle. I never wanted to be notorious. I'm just an ordinary man. Will Lizzie be there? We sent a wagon for her. I'm obliged. She had to sell ours. She'll be here for the service, but doesn't think she could bear watch the hanging. She'll wait here in my office where she could listen to you speak. Will I be able to see her before? You'll have breakfast together, and you'll have some private time. I miss her so much. Robert paces, then is startled by the sharp sound of nails being pounded outside. What's that? He looks out the window. Is that? Yes. The gallows. They're building it tonight. Ben starts to close the window. No. Leave it open. It's my destiny. I ain't fretting by death no more. Robert gazes out the window silently for a long moment. Life is flying past me like leaves in the wind. I'm a little boy at Five Oaks. Pap lifts me in the saddle for the first time. I smell the leather, smell the horse, feel it under me. I hear Mama's voice. Come and get it before I throw it to the hogs. I can see Lizzie. The way she looked the day we met, Lord of mercy, she was a sweet vision of heaven. Eighteen years old and a smile like pure sunshine. Took all my willpower not to propose to her on the spot, but I courted her like a proper bow. August 10th, 71, happiest day of my life. We was never separated a single day in 20 years until this calamity. I'm a pappy for the first time. Will's little warm body in my arms. I'm proud, fit to bust. I kiss Lizzie. You did fine, darling. I see Dex, Walter, Hattie, Frisco being born, taking their first steps, falling on their little bottoms and crying, Pappy, up, up. I see the hills above Woodland, almost as pretty as the Blue Ridge Mountains. It feels right. Lizzie, we're home now. We're never going to leave this place. Robert looks out the window again. Now I see you as I watched you from Pony Bush's attic window, a feared night of death, listening to you take the fire out of that lynch mob. Where'd you find the words that night? 
I had to do something. I said what I felt. I'll wager that's the longest speech you ever made in public. <laughs> you win. That's when I knew I'd done right by trusting you. You could have let them take me. Would have been easy. Not for me. No one should carry murder on their conscience. You saved my life that night. And other nights. Just do my job. They hated me so much. I hated them for hating me. But my final night won't be wasted on hate. Father Kern says, if I want to see Lizzie and the children again, I need to love my enemies. Good advice for all of us. What are you thinking? I've been carrying a burden I'd like to share with you before I die. This ain't easy. I'm listening. Remember I told you everyone in Company 1 was from Tazewell, and the fighting mostly was in Virginia? So, when there was planting or harvesting or a plea from the wife, men went home, took care of the things, and come back to the war. We called them stragglers. They actually came back? Most did. He ought to try that idea in a jailhouse. We do. We call it bail. Which the judge didn't see fit to let me have. Anyway, most come back first later in the war. They didn't. And then the commanders were not so forgiving. Two of our men deserted, but they turned outlaw. They broke into houses, stole food, money, livestock. One night they brutally murdered three old gentlemen in their own homes. Three old men who never did them harm. There was a black mark on the 16th Virginia Cavalry. Colonel Ferguson ordered us to hunt down the deserters, even though they'd been our friends. Got any whiskey? Think I could find some here. Scotch all right? Fine. Ben pours two drinks and gives Robert one. We asked Mosby's rangers for help finding them. It was hiding in a cave, wild, hungry. We had our orders. We hauled them back to camp. Colonel Ferguson ordered us to shoot him. Killing a friend is the hardest thing I ever did. When we lifted our rifles to kill two of our own, I almost lost my courage, even though I knew they killed innocent men. I heard Pap's words in my head, always do your duty like a man, never flinch, never back down. So I took the feeling out of my heart. I fired my gun, and I watched them fall. And I realized that even though it's hard to find the courage to face our own death, it takes harder courage to send others to death. Yes, it does. So, I know what you're going through. I've been an executioner. When I got home, everybody knew what I'd done. They didn't want to listen to the truth. They just hated me. My entire family has already moved to Missouri to get away from the hate. I followed them a few years later, but the ghosts followed me. I know what that's like. Yes, I reckon you do. I'm listening. I joined the Union Army for the most foolish of reasons. Recruiting posters were all over New Brunswick, promising $22 a month plus $100 government bounty at the end of the war. I was 26, restless, wanted to have a big adventure and do something that would make my father proud. In May of 64, I came across the St. Croix into Maine and enlisted. The next day, we marched out to join Grant's troop in northern Virginia. And you found out you'd been hoodwinked, and there's no money, no food, no sleep, and no glory in war. It was a nightmare. It still is. The Battle of the Wilderness was my introduction to war. 
These weren't the forests of home. Behind every tree in Virginia could be a rebel with a pistol or a sword. Trees were so close-set we fought mostly hand-to-hand, face-to-face. When one of us killed an enemy, the blood spilled on all of us. Every day I saw death. I was the instrument of death. I kept hearing Father's voice, Thou shalt not kill. But I also heard him say, Be the best at whatever you do. And duty and honor separates men from boys. So I kept fighting, battle after battle. Spotsylvania Courthouse. Thirteen horrible days of fighting and death. Cold harbor. An awful slaughter. Ten thousand Union soldiers killed or wounded in twelve days. Corpses everywhere I looked, bloated, turning black in the sun. Just enough life left in the men to make the fields look like they were crawling. Then we marched to Petersburg. I was at Petersburg. We came in October. July and August. Deep Bottom. I hear tell the heat was deadly at Deep Bottom. It felled as many men as the bullets. My face was scorched scarlet. I never got enough water. We fought four days before the generals called a truce to collect the dead and wounded. I hadn't allowed myself to feel emotion during battle. But when I helped carry our dead boys off the field and gathered their letters and diaries for their families... They called it Strawberry Plains, but I'll always think of it as the fields of blood, flowing bright red, soaking deep. Boys younger than my little brothers, lying with their brains blasted across the ground, bellies burst open, insides spilling out, bloated, black with flies. We had been fighting each other on top of that, crushing them with our boots, slipping on the blood. A stench of death was everywhere in our clothing and our hair. I was sick, sick in my belly, sick in my heart. These were just boys. I had done enough. I knew I could no longer be part of this. You're a deserter. I can't believe it. A man like you? You couldn't stick out the war more than a couple of months. I didn't have the gumption to do what you did. I wanted to. At night, I'd wake up in a cold sweat hearing the men I shot cursing me to hell. I was so homesick and sad I could hardly move. I wanted to go home so much. What stopped you? There were supplies at Farmville. It's all that kept us going, but Yankees got there before us. I didn't care anymore. I just wanted to hold my family. I ran, but I didn't make it far. Yankees caught me. I escaped, but Sheridan's cavalry caught me again near Appomattox, and that's where I was when Lee surrendered the next day. Where'd you go after? Wisconsin. Worked in the woods. Met Susan. She and our children are the best things in my life. I found peace in my work. Being the sheriff has given me purpose. The war's in the past. Let's leave it there. You're not to speak of this. Man, I'm a dead man. I'll take it to my grave. But you'll go on living with it. I've locked it away for nearly 30 years. I'll lock it back up. Another whiskey. Ben pours two. Robert lifts his glass. To death. Eventually it comes to us all. To death. And to courage. They drink. I've appreciated getting to know you. Likewise. Normally I don't talk about myself. Whereas I've done nothing but talk about myself. Sheriff, how about a game of checkers? Then I talk, talk, talk. I haven't complained. You never complain. I'm grateful for your patience. You're a true gentleman. I treat everyone as I'd like to be treated. It's the way I was raised. Like I said before, you was raised by kind folks. 
I'll save you a place in heaven if you look out for my wife and children. I'd do that anyway. I'm obliged. Although don't underestimate your wife. Women are stronger than we think. She is tough. I wish I was worthy of her. Then die with dignity. That's the best gift you can give your family. An honorable death. No one could find shame in that. When you speak on the gallows, take all the time you need. Tell the simple truth. Let the people know who you really are. I'll say it again. You're a true gentleman. And remember your father's words. Always do your duty like a man. Never flinch. Never back down. Be the brave man I know you are. I'll do that. I'll die with honor. That's a fine gift you've given me, Ben. But I can tell that kindness is costing you. It's the sheriff's duty. I won't shirk it. Even if I could, I wouldn't order another man to kill. But can you do it? I have to, won't I? A wise man told me, do your duty like a man. Never flinch, never back down. Be the brave man I know you are. Could I get fresh strawberries for breakfast? <laughs> I've already placed the order. Eggs, oatmeal, biscuits and gravy, and strawberries still wet with dew. Just the way I like them. Look, above the gallows, the sky is filled with stars. End of scene. Scene 9, setting, June 3rd, 1892, Ben's thoughts. At rise, Ben is alone. I sent Father Kearns in to pray with Robert, and then I went to speak with Judge Bloomfield, who was staying in the courthouse room he uses when he's on circuit here. I told him Robert Day isn't a common criminal. He has a real gift for healing with words, with stories. Even as I tried to explain, I felt foolish. The judge was rolling his eyes, and I could feel my face grow hot. How could I explain my own deep guilt, the secret I've never been able to share with anyone until tonight, and that Robert has given me the feeling of hope and the will to forgive myself? All because he got me to share my story. I feel as if I'm beginning to heal just at that moment when I have to take this man out of the world. But I couldn't say it. I stammered that he's a good man and who made a terrible mistake. The judge said he could tell I was going to miss him, but any grandmother can tell me fairy tales if that's what I want. I said it's different. He said all stories must come to an end. He said don't forget that he took a young man's life and he was convicted by a jury. The people we serve expect justice, and if they don't get it, we'll have another Oysterville. He judged that trial. The judgment was set aside on a technicality, just as Billings tried to do with Day. The prisoners never got a chance for a new trial because the lynch mob took the law into their own hands. Then he asked me how many lynch mobs tried to get day, and I felt a chill thinking about that speech I made to the mob on the courthouse steps. He said, Robert Day's fate is to die, Ben, if not on the gallows, on a tree. I said, but what about his wife and five children? They're getting a life sentence of poverty and shame. Is that justice? He said, Ben, you've gotten too close. There's no room for sentiment in matters of this kind. You and I are creatures of the law, and you have your sworn duty to carry out the orders of the court. I keep hearing Robert's words in my head. It's my destiny, and I ain't frightened by death anymore. End of scene. Scene 10, setting June 3rd, 1892. The courtroom just off the gallows. At rise, Ben brings Robert in. They're waiting to go out to the gallows. Robert is dressed in a suit. That's a nice suit. Was well, my wedding suit. I saved it to be buried in. Didn't plan to die in it, but God had other plans. Thank you for giving me time with Lizzie. It meant a lot to us. 
Is there anything else you'd like me to do for you? Yes. How about we skip the hanging? <laughs> Here. I'd like these buried with me. Hattie drew the picture. She's a good little artist for only eight. Lizzie, Will, Dex, Walter, Hattie, and Frisco. Wherever I'm going, they'll be with me. Hattie embroidered this hanky, and Lizzie did this one. So if there's any crying in heaven, I'm all taken care of. Do I have time to smoke a cigar? Absolutely. Ben gives him a cigar and lights it. You might give me the nerve to speak a few words out there. Is there a big crowd? Three or four hundred, more coming. The hillside is black with humanity. All in their best bib and tucker, as if we're Sunday school picnic. As many women as children as there are men. Maybe I should tell them a joke. Like the one about the lawyer. All right, I'll take your case. I'm confident I can get you justice. And the client says, hang it all. If that's the best you can do, I'd better go elsewhere. <laughs> or I'll kick a bit. Then I'll jump out of the rope and say, my headache is gone. <laughs> Don't say that. They'll all want to turn. Right this way, folks. Right this way. Cures colic, sneezing, and rheumatism. The only after effect is a strange tilting of the head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is terrible. We shouldn't be laughing. It's exactly why we should be laughing. We're two friends having the worst day of our lives, and we're going to get through it together. Or at least you will. I'll be lying down on the job. <laughs> You're incorrigible. Will you behave yourself on the gallows? I won't make trouble. I don't even see any need for you to be on hand. I can put the rope around my neck myself. That's a noble gesture, but no. I am the sheriff. All right, my friend. I'm ready to go. End of scene. Scene 11, setting, June 3rd, 1892, The Gallows. At Rise, recorded voices suggest a huge crowd at a social gathering such as a picnic. Ben enters and walks up to the gallows steps. Robert Day follows. He is unshackled and unsupported. His step is firm and steady. How do you do, gentlemen? My business here is to be hung. Ladies and gentlemen, we are assembled here today to witness the first execution in Cowlitz County, Washington. Robert Thompson Day, this is the charge against you, that you, on the 9th day of October, 1891, on the Lewis River near Woodland in Cowlitz County, Washington, did purposely and out of deliberate and premeditated malice shoot and mortally wound Thomas Clinton Beebe with a gun which you held in your hand. You are convicted of this crime on the 11th day of December, 1891, by a jury of your peers. We are here today to carry out the judge's order of execution by hanging. Mr. Day, you have the right to speak your piece before you die. Do you wish to exercise that right? I do. Thank you, Sheriff. Robert steps forward. He takes a moment to enjoy the sunshine, then speaks in a strong, steady voice that can be heard by the crowd. Newspapers will liken it to a parson giving a sermon. My name is Robert Thompson Day. I'm glad to be able to walk out here on this bright and beautiful day. I only wish it were under different circumstances. I have been in confinement for eight months, and I am glad to be here to see you all. I am here to answer for a crime which I committed on the Lewis River. I want to say that I committed that crime in defense of my property and in defense of my family. That 
is God's truth. I am 45 years of age, and it is my fate to die this way. I have lived an honest, upright life. I never tried to harm anyone, although my life has been full of cares and trouble. I have heard rumors that I was expected to make a big confession today of a lot of crimes. I have not committed any. I am innocent of all those that you are told about. It is said that I confessed to a man up in Lewis County that I had murdered other men. That statement is false. This crime that I give up my life for is the only one that I ever did. I forgive all men, and I hope that God Almighty will have mercy on them. I ask sympathy for my widow and sweet children. They have been deprived of my support since this trouble, and they are almost destitute. Anything that you can give to them, I thank you for. If anyone desires to help them, it may be done through Father Kearns or Sheriff Holmes. I give up all feeling of prejudice and die a Catholic, as I believe that to be the true faith. But I ask you to think of my family. Goodbye, wife. Goodbye, children. Goodbye. And God bless you all. Robert turns to Ben. I'm ready. They shake hands. Don't tie me too tight. End of scene. Scene 12. Setting. The gallows much later. At rise, Ben is alone. The gallows song is heard off. They've taken me to the gallows, mother. They're going to hang me high. The people will gather beneath me there and watch me till I die. The crazy mob will shout and groan. The priest will read a prayer. The trap will fall beneath my feet and leave me in the air. It is a bright and a beautiful day, the sun is shining high. It is a bright and a beautiful day, the sun is shining high. It is a wonderful day to live and a gloomy one to die. Robert enters. That November, Ben lost re-election for sheriff. But we can all be grateful that Judge Bloomfield also lost, and Colonel Billings got himself arrested for embezzlement. Ben became the Kalama postmaster. On his way home from the post office one day, he stopped to say hello to a little neighbor girl and got dizzy and fell, hidden his head. Doctor said it was a paralytic stroke. Ben died a few days later, on April 1st, 1895, with all his family around him. Ben Holmes treated me like a brother. He understood me. Only someone who's been through war can know what it's like. Those who don't understand will bring picnic lunches to watch soldiers kill each other or to watch a sheriff hang a prisoner. But war and execution ain't stage plays. When a play is done, you go home. But when a war is done, it goes home with you. Ben and I shot real guns, spilled real blood, caused real death. We felt real anguish and real fear. And we stood on a real gallows where I had to find the courage to die. But my friend Ben found the harder courage. And Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed part two of The Harder Courage by Leslie Slate. 
Be sure to subscribe and tune in next week. Play for Keeps podcast is produced by Ashland New Plays Festival and Play for Keeps. This podcast was produced by Andy Herndon. Art direction by Cara Quinn Lewis. Play for Keeps is directed by Jim Pagliasotti. Written content is edited by Carol Florian. Special thanks to Kyle Hayden, Jackie Apodaca, and Beth Kander. This is your host, Mary Claire Erdenast. Please visit us online at playforkeeps.org. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. Help us spread the word. Follow, like, share, and retweet. See you next time at Play for Keeps podcast. Books are meant to be read. Plays are meant to be said. <laughs>